Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Outset. If you haven't been following along, feel free to go back and watch the sermons on YouTube if you want to learn about the book, uh, book of Exodus. When you see Exodus in your Bible, I always think it's just good to, to, to share bases with people because we can't assume that everybody's a believer. We can't assume that everybody reads their Bible. Um, but when you see the book of Exodus in the Bible, all, all of Scripture is one long story. Oftentimes when we're in church, a pastor preaches from here, a pastor preaches from there, this section, that section, and we kind of never get a chance to see the story put together, but there's one storyline going through the tapestry of Scripture, and Exodus is a part of that. When you see Exodus, I just want to think of two words, either exit or departure, exit or departure, right? The Israelites are God's people. They've been Egyptian bondage for 400, actually 80 years. They were in Egypt for 400 years. The last 80 of those 400 years, they were in bondage serving under under a pharaoh, and uh, uh, this was hard labor, hard slavery, right? And so God made a promise to rescue his people out of slavery and bondage. And so the exodus is their exit, exit out of slavery, their exit out of bondage by the hand of God. They, they were saved and rescued by God. It was only God that can save them and rescue them. They had to learn that the only way we can get out of this bondage, the only way that we can be set free is if God does it. We cannot save ourselves. And so the Exodus really is a picture, not just for Israel, who are actual real people in real time, in real history. It was not just for them, but that's their, it's not just their story. It's also our story. They were freed from slavery and bondage to Pharaoh through Jesus Christ. We've been freed from our slavery and bondage to our sin. And so we, we can't just look at those people. Their story is actually our story. And so when we see their exodus, we need to see our exodus as well in Christ Jesus. And so we walk through this story. I don't want you to just think, oh, woe is them. I want you to look at them. And when you shake your head at them, you should be shaking your head at yourself. Well, when they, they are tripping and, and God is coming through for them and they keep forgetting that God is coming through for them, I don't want you to shake your head at them and say, man, he just parted the Red Sea for you. Why are you complaining? I want you to see your own life and notice how the times God has brought you through a Red Sea and you still complain. And so we see the Exodus is not just their story, but it's our story. And, and the, the fundamental theme is, is that God is with us. God is with us. So that's our sermon series that God is with us. And so if you've got a Bible today, I want you to turn me to Exodus 17 verses 8 through 16. Exodus 17 verses 8 through 16. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. It's only a few verses today, so last week I preached for four hours. Today I only do three and a half. If I ever preach that long, y'all just get up and walk out. Just leave me. Exodus 17, starting at verse 8, says this, At Rephidim... Amalek came and fought against Israel. Amalek came and fought against Israel. We, we don't see Amalek until we see him right here. Amalek came and fought against Israel. It's like Amalek, Amalek came out of nowhere. Amalek came and fought against Israel. And Moses says to Joshua, we've never seen that name before until now. Moses says to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow, here's what I'm going to do while y'all fighting. Tomorrow, I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hands down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him And he sat on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on the one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. 
The Lord then said to Moses, here's what I want you to do in light of what just happened. I want you to write this down on a scroll as a reminder, and I want you to recite it to Joshua. Here's what I want you to write down and recite to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Verse 15, and Moses right there built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is Jehovah Nisi. He is my banner. He said, indeed, my hand is lifted up towards the throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let us pray. God, we thank you today, Father, for this Gracious opportunity, God, to study your word. My prayer today, God, is that we would see you in a whole new way. My prayer today, God, is that you would open our minds and hearts, not just to receive, but, but God, to be transformed and to be changed, God. Lord, I pray that, that the good news of Jesus would be so attractive and so compelling today that the only option we will have is to worship and surrender our lives to him completely and totally, God. And so, Father, I pray that whatever heavy burdens we may be dealing with, whatever's going on in our minds and our hearts and our families and our work life and our finances, Father, I pray just for these few moments that through the Holy Spirit you would speak to us, God, that you would put our nerves at ease, God, that you would allow us to rest and be free from anxiety and worry and stress about things that we have no control over in the first place. And so, Father, I pray today, God, that we will see you as a God that not just provides for us, but a God that protects us. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would do only what you can do, God. Change our lives, God. Work on our hearts. Make us more like you. And so, Father, we thank you. We give you glory. We give you honor. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said amen. You may be seated. Just to to recap, we've been able to witness over the course of weeks, we've been able to witness over the course of weeks how God miraculously brought his people from Egyptian slavery. They were in Egypt dealing with this pharaoh, this taskmaster, and God, through a series of events, set his people free. He he did the miraculous on their behalf several times. God was doing all of this for one simple purpose, so that the Israelites would come to the realization that salvation only comes through God, that there was nothing that they could do on their own to save themselves. God saved them for his own glory. God saved them not because of them, not because they did anything good, not because they earned their salvation, not because they achieved their salvation, but but God saved them simply by his grace and for his glory. But God saved them. And, and God didn't just save them so that they could go free and do whatever they wanted to do, but God saved them for a purpose. God saved them so that he can sanctify them. So here's what God decided to do. God decided to give them a promise. He promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of rest, a land free from the worry and the stress of enemies, a land where they would have constant provision in a land where they would be in relationship with the Lord. And and so God frees them, but he doesn't just take them directly to the promised land. I told y'all for the last several weeks that God does not do direct flights. God is always making us take a connecting flight. I don't fly often. I I actually hate flying. I don't want to be on an airplane. But, but whenever I do fly, I do prefer a direct flight. I don't like connecting in some city that I've never been for before, and i got to sit there and wait for 30 minutes. I, I don't want to figure out how to navigate through an airport that I've never been through before. I, I don't like having to change planes if I'm going to fly at all. But the thing about God is God is just like that. God, God is like one of those airlines where he takes you to a place, but he never takes you directly there. There's always a stop. That that's what life is like in the wilderness. And so God brings them into the wilderness. We, we saw this last week that God brings them into the wilderness. There was a direct route to go to the promised land. They could have got there in a short amount of time, but God, for some reason, brought them out of Egypt and he tucked them in the opposite direction that they thought that they were going. But God wasn't doing that to confuse them. God was doing that on purpose. And so the wilderness is actually a picture of the Christian life. Oftentimes, God will not take us directly where we think we're going. When we have plans, and maybe one day we will get there, but oftentimes, if you're riding with Jesus, he doesn't just take you directly to where you think you're going. 
that there's always these different routes. There's always this route that God tends to take us that we did not expect. And this is what's happening to Israel in the wilderness. And here's the thing. When they get in the wilderness, they realize something that they don't have the bare essentials. They get in the wilderness and God intentionally brings them to a place where they don't have food and they don't have water. But I want to tell you this, like Israel had to learn, the wilderness was not punitive. The wilderness was not punitive. The wilderness was not meant for punishment, but the wilderness actually was meant for preparation. In the wilderness, God was actually sanctifying them. He was actually making them his people. God was getting rid of some stuff out of them that they had picked up in Egypt. What God realized and they didn't realize was they were out of Egypt, but Egypt wasn't out of them. And so this is what we're, we're seeing in the, in the text. So, so, so the, will, the, the wilderness is actually a test, but, but by testing them, God was teaching them to trust, them, trust him. By, by, by t- taking them in the wilderness, God was teaching them to trust him. God was taking them in the wilderness to teach them how to trust him. If, if they didn't have water in the wilderness, God was waiting for them to look and realize that we can't get water on our own, but water comes from God. We need to depend on God for everything that we need. And so the wilderness was not punitive, but rather it was a means of preparation and sanctification. And the wilderness for us serves as a pattern of the Christian life. God was testing them Not so that he would find out some new information about them. God already knew everything there was to know about the Israelites. God God knows everything there is to know about you. God is not testing you to find something out about you. God says, before uh, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. I I set you apart. God knows everything about your life today. There's nothing new that God needs to find out about you. And there was nothing new that God wanted to find out about the Israelites. God was testing them not so that he could learn something about them, but that so they could learn something about themselves. God, God wasn't trying to learn some new information. He was trying to teach them about themselves, about him and themselves. And let me tell you this, in this age where we are trying to find ourselves and learn who we are, let me give you some breaking news. You will never learn who you are apart from God. The only way you will learn who you are and what your identity truly is, is if you are in a deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That the best way to learn about you is to be connected to the one who created you. But oftentimes we try to take these journeys away from God to figure out our lives. And so we separate from everything, including God, to figure out who we are. But God created you, God saved you, and God is sanctifying you. And oftentimes when we try to figure out identity apart from God, there becomes this cognitive dissonance in our relationship with God. We don't live like we say we believe. And the reason why is that we try to further move ourselves away from the very person who created us. And if you want to know who you are, I suggest you make the journey towards God. And this is what they have to realize. They they were no longer in Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. And God was testing them in the wilderness to wean them off of every single earthly dependence that they had. They had to learn in the wilderness what we have to learn, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You think you need some physical thing, but what you really need is God. You think you need water, but what you really need is living water. You think that you need food and bread, but really what you need is the bread of heaven. And this is what he's teaching them. And so God is teaching them to trust him. This is what God is doing to us. God is teaching us to trust him. If you feel like you are going to a, through a test, if you feel like there are things in your life that you cannot figure out, if there, there seems to be this area in your life where you are stuck with that, that you wish would be over, that you wish you could just get rid of, the question is not to ask why. The question is to ask God, what are you doing? And can I suggest to you that God is testing you not to punish you, but to prepare you. God is sanctifying you so that you can finally wake up and realize that all you ever needed was him. This is what's happening in the wilderness. Through a sequence of miraculous events, we see God 
turning bitter water sweet. We see God providing manna for them to eat. We see God providing water for them out of the rock. And they learn that not only can God alone save them, but God alone will sustain them. That, that God is the one who will keep them. And this is what God does for us in this life as we pilgrimage on our journey from here until we get to home. Right. And so this is what God is doing for us. And in the wilderness, there is want. There, there is want in the wilderness. They keep finding themselves wanting and needing something. There is lack in the wilderness. There is want in the wilderness. There is need in the wilderness. But we can trust God to supply those needs. So in the wilderness, there is want. There is want, but that's not all that there is in the wilderness. Which leads me to my sermon title today. There's not just want in the wilderness, but there is warfare in the wilderness. That there is warfare in the wilderness. And for the first time in Israel's history, the theme of warfare is introduced. What they have not had to do all of this time is fight. When, when they were dealing with Pharaoh in Egypt... God was doing everything. God was parting the Red Sea. God was sending plagues to them. God was doing everything possible to get them out of Egypt, but they never had to lift a finger. And for the first time, we see that they have to fight. God drowned Pharaoh in the Red Sea. They didn't have to lift a finger, but now they find themselves having to learn how to do hand-to-hand combat. And this will happen for the rest of their history as a people. They will now have to learn how to throw them hands. They got to learn how to throw them hands. And and the bad news is that if we learn anything about the Israelites, they are not a strong people. They they are not a numerous people. They are a weak people. They are not impressive at all. They are not somebody that you will pick in a pickup game. This is not somebody that you want in a foxhole with you when it's time to fight. This is the dude that is puny, that can't fight, that always run. This is who Israel is. So they are not capable of winning a fight and defending themselves. But yet and still, here we see that they are under attack for the first time. And if the wilderness is a pattern of our life in Christ, this is a picture for us of our own warfare. This is a picture of us of our own warfare. And here's what happens to us as believers. We lose sight of one of the most consequential aspects of our walk with God. We often forget that there's a real enemy that attacks and seeks to distract and destroy us. And we keep blaming other people. The person you're in relationship with is not really your enemy. Can I suggest that the job is not really your enemy? What if I told you that your family is not really your enemy? What if I suggest to you that the person that is an antagonist to your soul, the one person in your life that they don't even know they're they're on the the verge of getting these hands, what, what if I told you that that's really not your enemy? Oftentimes, we look for somewhere to blame without looking at where we actually should start. Now, we all know there are certain people that blame the devil on everything. You get lost, you blame the devil. You show up late for work. Although you woke up late, you blame the devil. You leave work early, get fired. Guess who you blame? The devil. I'm not saying the devil should get all the blame because we bear responsibility, but I am saying that he should get some of the blame. That that we can't be so naive not to think that when we hit a wall, when we suffer things, when we go through trials, that there's a real enemy working against us. I can't overstate this, that there is a real life enemy that comes to steal, to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God is doing in our lives. That there is a real enemy in our generation has gotten sucked into this vortex of thinking that, that if we just improve ourselves, if we just move to a new location, if we just get a different job, if we just get a new relationship, if we just do this or do that, then things will get better. Not knowing that there is a real enemy that we cannot underestimate. That we have a real enemy. Now I want you to think in your life right now, what is your greatest battle in your life? And can I suggest to you? that there's someone behind that. Job, a righteous man who's blameless, who takes care of his family, who makes sacrifices for his family, who's doing the best that he can, who is a godly family, a godly man who prays for his family, who prays for his kids. And one day, who comes to God and says, let me get him. Matter of fact, God offers him up. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And do you know that Job never knew what was behind all the things that would happen in his life until he died and got to heaven? 
can I suggest to you that just maybe the things that are outside of your control, this, this, this warfare that you go through, this, this health stuff, this relational stuff, this financial stuff, this spiritual stuff that is happening to you that you can't explain its origin or how it got there, can I suggest to you that there's a real life enemy? And this is what is happening to them. We, we lose sight of this, but, 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 but how about I tell you this, that, that there is no idea of, of, of us as believers being civilians. Matter of fact, when the Bible talks about us, it often talks about us as soldiers. When, when Paul is talking to his son Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What do soldiers do? Soldiers prepare and fight for war. He also says, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilians, for they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. There, there, is, there, there is a thought that we are all soldiers in a battle. But we often forget. I want to quote theologian J.C. Ryle, what he said about spiritual warfare. Here's what he said. He says, I fear much for many professing Christians. I see no sign of fighting in them, much less victory. They never strike one stroke on the side of Christ. They are at peace with enemies. They have no quarrel with sin. I warned you, I warn you that this is not Christianity. This is not the way of heaven. He goes on to say that warfare with the powers of hell is the experience of every individual member of the true church. Each has to fight. What are the lives of all the saints but records of battles? And this is what we see as we study the text. And Israel is in a fight, in an ongoing battle with an enemy called the Amalekites. And so here's what you need to know about the Amalekites. They are descendants of Esau. If you look back in Genesis, Genesis 36, there's two brothers. There's Jacob and Esau. Esau is symbolic of the flesh. Esau uh, sells his birthright for, to his brother for some food. He's hungry after the flesh, and so he'll do whatever he can to satisfy his flesh later on. Uh, his mom and his brother trick him into getting his father's blessing. And so Esau, the, these are Esau's people. Esau is a type of the flesh and the, uh, the Melekites. Here's what they do. They make their living by attacking and stealing from other people. They, they make their living by attacking and stealing from other people. The next time you see the Amalekites in Scripture, I want you to know that they are a group of people who make their living by attacking and stealing from other people. That this was the first attack, but it wouldn't be the last. That they are a consistent enemy of the people of God, but they are far stronger and more skilled at fighting than the, than the Israelites. The Amalekites are a type of the flesh. They represent sin and wickedness. They represent all that is against God's reign and rule in the world. The Amalekites are a type of the flesh. And when the Amalekites came to attack, they didn't come to fight them face to face. They came and brought a surprise attack and they crept up on the Israelites in their place of weakness. You don't believe me? Watch what it says in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 18. Look at what it says about the Amalekites. This is another uh, record of the Amalekites. Here's what it says. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. I want to read that again for the people in the back that didn't get it the first time. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. For they did not fear God. Ain't that just like the enemy to attack you when you're tired? When are you most likely to cuss somebody out? Right when you're not expecting it. You on your way home from work, you had a long day, it's been hard, it's been rough, somebody done got on your last nerve, and there they are cutting you off in traffic. And what happens? Somebody said, oh, Jesus, because you're weak and tired. That's what the enemy does. He almost never comes to your place of strength. If you don't drink, he can't attack you with alcohol. If you, if you don't do drugs, and somebody can put all the drugs around you, but you're not tempted to smoke or whatever people do with drugs. But he will attack you in the place you're more inclined to give in. And this is what the Israelites do. They are a cunning and conniving enemy that will have an ongoing physical battle 
with the Israelites. But the good news is that God promises Israel victory. He promises them that no matter how many times the Amalekites attack you, you will have victory. No matter what, what happens, no matter if it looks like you might be losing, you have victory. And so if the Israelites have a physical battle, then can I suggest to you that you don't have a physical battle, but you do have a spiritual battle. Here's what Ephesians 6 says. Ephesians 6, 12 through 13 says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. So we, we, we do warfare. We have an enemy that we can't necessarily see. But there is a real enemy. And the reason that we have these battles is the enemy hopes that at some point we would do something that would dishonor God and rob him of glory. The battle that you face is not even about you. When Job gets attacked, God says, have you considered my servant Job? And the bet between God and Satan is that Job won't renounce his relationship with the Lord. Job has a physical battle going on, but his physical battle ain't really physical. It's actually spiritual. And there's a, a great battle going on that Job cannot see. And this is the same thing that is happening to us. And some of the battles that we're facing right now, we won't realize what they are until we get to heaven. And this is what's happening in this text. They, they, they want the people of God to forsake their relationship with God and rob God of his glory. And so today, here's what I want to do. I, I want to look at three things that we need if we're going to be successful in spiritual warfare. There are three things that we need if we're going to be successful in spiritual warfare. N number one, here's what we need. First and foremost, we need the power and the presence of God, of the presence and the power of God, number one. Number two, we need the presence and the prayers of the saints. Number two, we need the presence and the prayers of the saints. And number three, this is long. I couldn't make it shorter. I tried for your behalf, but I couldn't. The, 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 the presence of mind to remember the promises of God. That the presence of mind to remember the promises of God. Number one, we need the presence and the power of God. Number two, we need the presence and the prayers of the saints. And number three, we need the presence of mind to remember the promises of God. But first, we must have the presence and the power of God. And verse 9 tells us, tomorrow on the hilltop, I will stand with God's staff in my hand. And so we, we've seen Moses with this staff before. We've seen the staff, and the staff is simply a symbol of the power and the presence of God. The staff that Moses uses is a symbol of the power and the presence of God. We've seen the staff turn water, turn blood to water in the Nile. We've seen the staff uh, make the Red Sea part. We've seen the staff make water out of a rock at Rephidim. We've seen all the things that the staff does, but there's nothing powerful about the staff in itself. It is just the instrument that God uses to, to show his power. And so Moses carries around this staff because it represents the power in the presence of God. And so Moses says, I'm going to raise my hands. I'm going to battle the, the hilltop while y'all battling. I'm going to raise my hands. And every time Moses raises his hands, the Israelites are winning. But when he takes them down, the Malachites prevail. And so the staff is representative of the power in the presence of God. Moses knows that the presence and the power of God it's critical for him to have victory. He knows that if we're going to win, we need the power of God. And to not depend on God in a battle is to invite defeat. God is always the difference between victory and defeat. But God always does the real fighting. He just does it through human means. Spiritual warfare has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the glory of God. Spiritual warfare has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the glory of God. We are never fighting just to fight, but we are fighting for the glory of God. Moses knows that Israel cannot prevail apart from God. We can't prevail either. If, if we're fighting and we don't have God, if we're not aware of his presence, if we're not practicing the presence of God, if we're not inviting his presence and his power in our lives, if we're not aware of the power and the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, then we are inviting, we are inviting loss after loss after loss. And whenever we try to do battle uh, apart from God, Satan hands us an L. But if we have the power and presence of God, we will always win. 
And here's the thing, Moses is holding this staff above his head, and his staff is being held, and in, 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 in oftentimes in scriptures, whenever a person held their hands up, if we look through the Psalms, if we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, the holding up of the hands is a sign and symbol of prayer. That, that means that Moses is actually praying. Moses is actually interceding on behalf of the people. And if we are to succeed in battle, the way that we access the presence and the power of God is through prayer. If you're not praying, if, if we're not praying, then we're always inviting uh, defeat. If, if we're not praying, we're, we are asking to lose. We, we must always be prayerful. The scriptures tell us pray without ceasing. We should always be praying. Now, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Should I just go around just praying, never get anything done, just pray? No, it means that we should have the presence of mind to always pray about every situation. That that prayer needs to become a part of our daily routine and our life and our journey with God. We should always be praying. No, not the little short prayer you pray in the morning on your way to work. No, just not the prayer that you pray at the end of the night that you're too sleepy to pray in the first place. But we should always be praying. Everything is worth praying about. And, and, and so Moses realizes this. M M Moses is not only a leader. Moses is actually an intercessor for the people. M Moses is an intercessor for the people. If the people have a problem, they go to Moses. And Moses accesses God for the people. Moses is actually an intercessor. Moses is a mediator and an intercessor for the people of God. But Moses is just a man. At some point, Moses will get tired of praying. And so Moses, as a mediator, is actually, and a, as a mediator and an intercessor, is actually a type of Christ. He is imaging Jesus. Jesus, who will later come and be our great high priest and our intercessor. And Jesus' hands never get tired. He's always praying for us. And so we look at the scriptures. I want to show you something. Romans 8, 34. Look at this. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God. And guess what he does? He intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25, look at this. I love this scripture. Hebrews 7.25, it says this, that he lives to make intercession for us. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. That is a game changer. You want people praying for you, but more than people, you want Jesus praying for you. People will forget to pray for you. You know how it is. Somebody comes up to you and they say, can you pray for me? And you be like, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. And, and if we're being honest, how many times have we forgot? But Jesus never forgets. And if there's anybody that we should celebrate that's praying for us, we need to take comfort in knowing that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. That's crazy. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. See, we think Jesus died and was raised, and now he's just in heaven chilling. But let me tell you this. Jesus didn't go to heaven to take a break. Jesus is working on your behalf. Jesus is praying for you and you forget to pray for yourself. And let me tell you something about Jesus when he's praying. He does not miss in his prayers. Jesus always prays the perfect prayer. And when Jesus prays, Jesus gets results. And if Jesus is praying for you, you will always have victory. Jesus is our intercessor. God is praying for you. I need you to remember that when you get weak and you don't even know what to say, God is praying for you. That, that, that's good news. We often forget that part of the gospel. Yes, he came, he suffered. Yes, he died. Yes, he was raised to life. But it also tells us that he ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing up there? He's ruling, reigning, and praying for you. That, that's good news to know that God is praying for me, that Jesus is fighting for me, that Jesus never ducks and dodges a fight. You know some people, if y'all get into a squabble, the people that you came with me, everybody in a better situation where you've been about to fight somebody and somebody was with you ran. But Jesus never ducks and runs. And you want Jesus fighting for you. Jesus is like Mike Tyson, 1988. Nobody could beat Mike. Every fight ended quick. And this is what Jesus is. He is the undefeated King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our intercessor. But we don't just need the presence and the power of God. We also need the presence and the prayers of the saints. You need somebody praying for you. And Moses, as a leader, makes a decision not to go at it alone. 
he makes a decision that he needs support. This can't be overstated. And so for the first time, we get to see Joshua introduced to us in the Bible. And Joshua will become a fixture in the life of Israel. Joshua will become a great leader and a great warrior. Here's what you need to know. Spoiler alert. If you don't know the rest of the story, I'm going to spoil it for you real quick. Don't watch the movie. I'm going to spoil it for you if you, already, if you haven't seen it yet. Joshua and Caleb are the only people over the age of 20 that actually entered into the promised land. Everybody else died in the wilderness because they were complaining. But Joshua, not Moses, Joshua will be the, pe- be the one who leads the people into Canaan. And here we see Joshua for the first time. And Moses tells Joshua, Joshua, you go down there and fight. Aaron and her, you come up with me on the, on the hilltop. Aaron is Moses' brother, his assistant sort of, kind of. And her is a judge in Israel. He's like an elder, a leader in Israel. And he takes them up with him on the hilltop to, to hold his hands up. Moses reveals something for us. He takes the time to realize that if I go up here, I don't need to do battle by myself. That, that I, don't, I, I don't need to do battle by, my, by, by myself. I, I, I am a great leader. But even if I'm a great leader, I'm not strong enough by myself. This is so wise because Moses anticipated his own frailty. Moses anticipated that if I'm going to go to battle, I can't go by myself. You would be a fool to think that you can walk through this Christian life without somebody else by your side. You would be a fool to think that you don't need other people interceding for you. You you would be crazy and naive to think that you would just do it by yourself. How often, because of our pride and privacy, do we struggle far too long because we're too prideful to ask for help? How long have you struggled by yourself because your pride tells you, I need my privacy? But maybe the struggle would be far shorter if you enlisted the help of other people. This is why I don't get it. And, and, and I know people think that I say this because I'm a pastor. And I'm just being honest. I'm being honest with you. When I look through the entirety of the scriptures, I don't see any successful individual leader. When I look at Moses, he needs Joshua. He needs Aaron and her. When I look at Paul, Paul needs Timothy. Paul needs Barnabas. Paul needs Silas. Paul needs a team. When Jesus is going around, he's picking up dudes to be his disciples. I never see a successful or great leader in the scriptures that is doing it by himself. So if that's not the model that is set for us, why do we try to go at it alone? In the name of keeping it to ourselves. We would rather front on social media like we got it all together and suffer in silence. But the scripture invites us to invite others into life with us. Moses knew he couldn't go at it alone. Yes, I'm going to go up here. And yes, I can hold my hands up, but I can't do it for too long. So here's what it says in verses 12 through 13. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on the one side and one on the others, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. Every leader needs help. And also, there must be people who are willing to be Aaron and Hur's for somebody else. Oh, yeah. I know you need help, but are you willing to be help? I know you want somebody to pray for you, but who are you willing to pray for? God doesn't just calls us, call us to be takers, but God calls us to be givers. Who, who have you seen and you prayed for unprompted without them asking? Who, who have you put on your prayer list to pray for consistently and you don't even have to tell them that you're praying for them? Or is your prayer life, God bless me, bless my relationship, bless my couple of dollars, Help my career. God bless my health. 
God bless my kids. God bless my spouse. God bless my significant other. God bless my circumstance. God bless my situation. God just bless me, 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 me. But we never see that as a pattern of prayer in Scripture. And we must become a people who pray beyond our own doorstep. Here's what it says in Ephesians 6. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and prayer and request and stay alert with all preservation and intercession for who? For all the saints. We we should always be praying for each other. When we look at the book of Acts and we see how the church was growing and, and they faced persecution, but they still preached the gospel with boldness. They still served others with boldness. They were willing to put their lives on the line. They were not doing that by sheer willpower. It was because of the power of prayer. And if we're going to accomplish anything for God, we need to be praying for each other. I love what John Owen Cheku says. He says this about corporate prayer. Prayer was never meant to be merely a personal exercise with personal benefits, but a discipline that reminds us how we're personally responsible for others. This means that every time we pray, we should actively reject an individualistic mindset. We're not just individuals in relationship with God, but we are part of a community of people who have the same access to God. Prayer is a collective exercise. We should be praying for together. So so I have a couple questions. Who do you pray for consistently that does not bear your same last name? Who have you witnessed that is engaged in battle and you made it your personal priority not to critique but to pray? Let, Let me say that. Let me say that again. For the critical people in the room, who have you witnessed that is engaged in a real battle in their life and you made it your personal priority not to critique them, but to pray for them. Who who have you committed to praying about instead of talking about? And this is the precedence that is set because corporate prayer is a vital defense in spiritual warfare. And the good news is this. We have temporary victory in spiritual warfare with the presence and prayers of others, but we have ultimate victory through our faith in God alone. And so, if we need the presence and power of God, and we need the presence and prayers of others, even if others don't pray for us, my last and final point is this. We need the presence of mind to remember the promises of God. We need the presence of mind to remember the promises of God. Look at verses 14 through 16. The Lord then said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. Here's what he says. Although you are presently in a battle, although you see a real enemy, although they are fighting you, although it is an ongoing battle, although it seems that it never ends, although it seems that they're trying to destroy you and distract you, although it seems that it will never come to an end, that you will be in this battle forever, here's what he says, here's my promise, I will completely blot out the memory of of Amalekites, of Amalekites under heaven, I'll completely get rid of them at some point. So if you know that you ultimately have victory, there's no need for you to stop fighting. And here's what he says. And Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. And God wants Moses to present to Joshua a reminder of a promise that he will destroy the Amalekites. At some point, God will destroy them. God promises victory moving forward in the future. Every time you get under attack, every time they come out of nowhere, every time they attack you where you're weak, every time you think you're about to give out and can't take it anymore, there's a promise that you will have victory. That, that God is, is fighting for you. They, they know that the Amaleks want to disrupt. They want to distract. They want to destroy what God is doing in their lives. However, God says that at some point, you will have victory. So, this reminds me of the promise 
We look at Genesis, after the fall of man, God makes a promise. God makes a promise right there in the text to Satan. He makes a promise to Satan and tells Satan how it's going to play out. You can attack my people all of these years, but at some point, some point, the end is coming for you. And he says this to Satan. He says this to the serpent. He shall bruise your head. The seed of the woman shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He was talking about Jesus when Jesus would come back to crush Satan. And let me tell you this, Jesus has already defeated our greatest nemesis, which is Satan, sin, and death. He's already destroyed. He's already put them to open shame. However, he's destroyed them, but they have yet to surrender. And so you're wondering why you're still fighting. In every war, there's always a stronghold. When every war is over and and there's nothing else the enemy can do, there's always this one little stronghold that will never give up. But eventually, Even that stronghold gets destroyed. And this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has defeated our final enemy, which is sin and death. He overcame them on the cross. He died the death that we would ultimately die, but he was raised to life for us. And so if he's been raised, we have been raised with him. This is the good news of the gospel. No matter what the enemy does to you, even if it looks like he has won, you have victory in Christ Jesus because he's already overcame your greatest nemesis. So yes, sin comes to you. Yes, you fall to temptation sometimes but ultimately Jesus is coming back and when he comes back he's going to set everything straight and you will never have to deal with the enemy again but now we fight until then we fight and here's what he says he says he makes a banner to the Lord he says the Lord is my banner if you know anything about the military oftentimes at the end of the battle they'll plant a flag and Moses is saying, I've planted a banner here as a reminder that when I see this banner, I'll know that God already gave me victory. He says the people need to see the banner. The people need to see the banner lifted up. And so when this banner is lifted up, we will know that God has already won for us. And you might be asking, well, what is our banner? Our banner is the cross. And every time you see that cross, it's not just a reminder that we need to doubt ourselves, but it's also a reminder that in death there was victory through Jesus Christ. Every time you see that cross, you might have one tattooed on your arm. You might have one wrapped around your neck. You might have earrings with a cross on them. But whenever you see that cross, you need to be reminded that you have victory in Christ Jesus, that he has overcome the grave, that at some point you won't have to deal with what you're dealing with. At some point, sickness will be over. At some point, the temptation will be over. At some point, we will have victory completely and we'll never have to fight ever again. And This is what the gospel promises us. So Moses makes it, makes his banner to the Lord. The banner was not just a reminder of victory, but it was a reminder for the people to always worship. I'm done. But even in battle, we should always worship. That we should be able to say, even in our difficult seasons, God, I worship you. See, worship is not really worship when it's easy. But real worship happens when we can't take it anymore. Real worship happens when we've grown weary and tired and we still open our mouths and say, thank you, God. Worship happens when we have to press through the hard seasons of life. Worship happens when we say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Worship happens when we have been weighed down by life. And all we can do is cry out to God. And Moses says, the Lord is my banner. I have victory in him, but I will never stop worshiping. And this is what the text invites us to, that the Lord is our banner. This banner is lifted up for the people to see. And you know what Jesus says? If I be lifted up, I would draw all men. Jesus becomes our banner. And in our banner, we have salvation. It's not about anything we could do. It's not about anything we could earn. It's not about anything we can achieve. Your success does not merit heaven for you. Listen to me. You can get 47 degrees and it means absolutely nothing. You can make all the money in the world, but your money cannot save you. 
you can tithe from here to Timbuktu and it won't save you. Like, whoa, a preacher said you can tithe and it still won't save you? Because we're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in God alone. So this is what happens when we look at the book of Exodus. We see a people who are not strong enough to fight, who are not strong enough to save themselves. But we see a compassionate, kind, gracious God who comes in to save his people. And this is what Christ has done for us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because if we could have saved ourselves, we would have saved ourselves. But God has come down and saved us. And he offers us salvation and eternal life through his son Jesus. But even if we're saved, we'll still have to fight because there's still spiritual warfare. So warfare in this life, in, in, in our wilderness seasons, that there will be warfare in the wilderness. That we should not be surprised when things happen that we do not see coming. It is a part of life. But the good news is that God is with us. That we serve a God who promises never to leave us nor forsake us. Just because there is pain doesn't mean that God is absent. Just because you don't see an immediate relief of your immediate circumstances doesn't mean that God isn't with you. But the reality is, is that he is there. That he is with us. And this is why we need the presence of mind to remember the promises of God. Because when you don't feel God, you need his promises. Everybody's been in a season where you just can't seem to feel God. And you're asking, God, where are you? God, I've done everything I could to, to get rid of this. I've tried to fix it. I've tried to pay for it. i tried to throw money at it. i tried to call other people in. And nothing is working. Where, where are you? And God says, I promise you never to leave you nor forsake you. The reason you haven't died in it yet is because I'm with you. And this is the God we serve. And this is the great assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. But there will be warfare in the wilderness. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you.